You know, I can remember that, that night when uh, Shane got saved. In fact, a lot of young people professed faith in Jesus at those Jesus Saves events. And so we started doing all kinds of events designed to get young people to come to church. We would have free in and out or offer movie tickets, whatever it would take to lure them in. And then we would preach to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, a lot of nights like this, worship, testimonies, getting into the word, hearing the gospel. And my favorite part of those nights were the conversations that would take place afterwards all over the church. You could see people outside. Maybe they were crying, talking to somebody, sometimes for hours. And then they would run up afterwards and they would say, so-and-so just got saved. You won't believe it. And it was like, no, actually, I do believe it because that's what Jesus does. And so we wanted to have the same series of events and see Jesus save people here at this church. And so I'm so glad to have you here tonight. And we're carrying on this idea of the salvation conversation, that Jesus didn't just come to save the world. Jesus was seeking out individuals, people like you, that he wanted to deliver from sin and to give a new life in the light with him. And so grab your Bible, and hopefully you got one, and turn with me to John chapter 4. Everybody, go there. It's page 888 if you got one of our Bibles. And if you were here last week, we looked at the first one of these salvation conversations in the Gospel of John, where Jesus has this one-on-one conversation with a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus, he was a very religious man. In fact, he's described as a ruler of the Jews or a teacher of Israel. And that's what a lot of people think. If Jesus was walking around on planet Earth right now, he'd probably talk to like the super important people, the super religious people. A lot of people, if you think, well, who would Jesus talk to on planet Earth? They might think he would talk to the Pope or maybe he would talk to President Obama or maybe he'd talk to Putin or somebody important, somebody who really seems like a big deal, who controls how people think, a mover and a shaker. So you think, okay, I can understand Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Well, no one would have anticipated Jesus going out of his way to meet with a woman at a well in the middle of Samaria. But that's what we see here tonight. Uh, And I want you to just start reading it with me. John chapter 4, verse 1. And we're going to go through uh, quite a bit of passage, so we'll move quickly here tonight. But let's look at this conversation that Jesus has with this woman that changes her life forever. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist, that's what we talked about on Sunday if you were here, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. And if you're starting to put together the geography of Israel, Judea is down in the south where Jerusalem is, Galilee is the northern area where there's the sea, where Jesus and his fishermen disciples have a lot of their adventures. Well, in between is this area, Samaria. And it says in uh, verse 5, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar. And this was near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
So Jesus asks a woman at a well for a drink of water. And look at verse 9. This starts to give you the clue of what's going on here. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then just in case you don't know what's going on, parentheses, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, what we're talking about here is just good old-fashioned 100% racism. That's what we're talking about, okay? We're talking about the Samaritans were now seen by the Jewish people as a half-breed kind of person. If you know the Old Testament, if you've studied it, the kingdom uh, of Israel gets divided actually into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel gets invaded by the Assyrians. And when they destroy Israel in Galilee area, in Samaria area, they bring in people from all over the place and they have them live there in Samaria. And so the Jewish people that remain there end up marrying and kind of, you know, polluting the Jewish race, so to speak. And, and they start intermarrying with all kinds of people from other nations. And so it be, that's part of the way that the Assyrians really destroyed Israel was bringing in some new people. So it would never be Israel from that day forward. And the Jews who lived to the north and the south of Samaria would have hated that area. They would have thought the people in there weren't righteous. They would have judged them because of this half-breed, intermarrying kind of thing that would have happened. To the point where some Jews would have even gone around Samaria, even though it was a longer way. They would have gone around because they didn't even want to interact with Samaritans. Okay? And the fact even that the disciples, as it says here in verse 8, that the disciples went to buy food from one of the Samaritan towns even that would have been looked down upon by many of the Jewish people. Right away there, we would have had a big problem. Like, why are you guys getting your food from those unclean people, the Samaritans? And so that's one dynamic that's going on here, is this lady is surprised that a Jew is talking to her, a woman of Samaria, but she's also surprised that a man would even talk to a woman. Particularly, uh, probably a woman like her. Uh, if you look back here at verse 6, you'll see right at the end of verse 6, here's a key detail. You might want to take a note of this or jot this down in your Bible, but it, it says the sixth hour. Now, if you've got a footnote there, it might tell you when that, that is. That's about noon, okay? We're not talking about 6 o'clock. We're not talking about getting out there at the beginning of the day. That's when you think most people would probably want to, want to go get their water at the beginning of the day before the sun was up to get ready for the whole day. Remember, people don't have uh, the, the faucet. They, aren't, they didn't even have the luxury of tap water, if you can think of that as a luxury. Well, they didn't have it, right? Uh, and so they had to go draw their water from this well. And so usually they would have done that probably at the beginning or the end of the day. But the sixth hour, that's actually the sixth hour since the sun came up, which would put it right about noon in the middle of the day, at the heat of the day. So the fact that this woman is coming out in the middle of the day when it's at its hottest to get water, if you've heard this story before, it's probably been explained to you that the idea here is she didn't want to be around the other people, or maybe even, to say it better, the other people in her town didn't want her around. Okay, she was a woman of ill repute. She was the kind of woman who had a bad reputation. 
And a lot of men would have been sexist. They would have not even have acknowledged women in public, but particularly a woman like her would have been scorned by many of the self-righteous good people of the day. She would have been looked down upon. So this woman, who's used to being probably a social outcast and sneaking out when no one else is around to get her water, now finds a Jewish man talking to her, and she's surprised right away. And many of the people reading this story would have been surprised to find that before the Messiah ever really announces himself to the Jewish people, he seeks out a Samaritan woman and discloses who he is to her in an intimate one-on-one conversation. Shocking. Right away. The woman is shocked that this conversation is even taking place. And I think when you have Nicodemus in one chapter and the woman at the well in the other chapter, John's trying to make a point. Here's the kind of people that Jesus came to seek and save. Sinners. That's the kind of people he's looking for. Not just the religious people. Not the people that you would think are the right candidates to be saved. No, the people that you would write off. The people that you would think would never, ever come to salvation because they're too far gone. Not for Jesus. Let me tell you that right now. Those are the people he's looking for. Okay? And he even gets this, you get this interesting sense here in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, and he had to pass through Samaria. It's this weird kind of phrase there. Like he had to pass there. Like there was a date with destiny. Like there was fate, if you believe in that kind of thing. Like it had already been prearranged, perhaps. There was a meeting, a divine appointment, we sometimes call them. Something that was supposed to take place. That Jesus was actually, out of all the things that he could do on planet earth, as God among men, he was on purpose going to this well at this hour to meet this woman. Like he knew she was going to be there. Like maybe he'd actually seen her there many times before in his godness. And now he was going to talk to her as a man. And that's what we're going to see that unfolds as the story goes. But this woman, it's more amazing that it's just a Jew and it's just a man who is talking to her. It's actually God who has come out to talk to her that day for one purpose. He wants her soul. That's why Jesus strikes up this conversation. There's a lot of stories in the Bible where it might look like someone is seeking God, but what you realize when you back it up a little bit is that God is seeking out them. Point number one, let's put it down like this. Jesus is the seeker of your soul. Jesus is the seeker of your soul. Jesus came on a seek and save mission for the lost, and we see that exemplified here, perhaps one of the best examples in all of the Bible, as he goes after the least likely candidate to be saved. And he wants her. Now, I'm going to preach this sermon tonight like you are a sinner who needs to be saved. And if you have a hard time associating yourself as a sinner, I hope that this is the most offensive sermon that you have ever heard in your entire life. Okay, Because the point that we're trying to make here is clearly that I'm not just going to go after the teacher of Israel and ask him why he's not teaching my people the truth. No, I'm going to go after the person that would have been looked down on, the outcast of Israel, and I want to save her too. Here's something you have to know about yourself. If you're ever going to enjoy salvation, you have to know that you're a sinner. That's what Jesus saves you from. 
That's what you have to come to him with. And, and it, the good news is it doesn't matter what kind of uh, sinner you are, whether you are a male or a female, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are slave or free, what kind of nationality you come from here tonight. I don't care what kind of flesh your soul is encased in. Jesus wants the real you, and he wants to save you. In fact, here's a verse we want to throw up on the screen. Just jot this reference down. Here's Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. And see if this doesn't apply to this woman from Samaria. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For all of us as souls, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? When you meet Jesus Christ, racism stops. Sexism stops. All kinds of partiality that you might show to different people based on their vocation or based on their bank account, it all ends at the door where you meet Jesus Christ. Because he wants your soul. He wants you to save you out of your sin. And Jesus, he often got looked down on himself by the religious people of his day. The church people, so to speak, didn't really understand what Jesus was doing a lot of times when they mocked him for hanging out with and being a friend of and going to dinner with sinners. Do you remember some of these stories? Like you could write down Luke 15, 1 to 2, where the Pharisees and the religious leaders go off on Jesus because he is becoming a friend of tax collectors and prostitutes, okay? A friend of sinners, There was something about the sinners that made them want to come to Jesus, and there was something about Jesus that welcomed the sinners straight to himself. See? And the the religious people, they didn't really understand this very much. In fact, turn with me to Luke 19, and let's look at a great example of Jesus coming to seek and save uh, a sinner, another person who was a social outcast. And we'll just see another great example of this. Uh, A wee little man, we call him around here at the church, because we're bullying people here at the church too. So we call him a wee little man named, what's his name? Anybody know what his name is? Zacchaeus, right? Anybody go to grow up singing that song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he, right? Anybody sing that song before? Anybody grow up going to church? You judgmental, self-righteous people. I mean, it is a good thing we're making a strong push against bullying. We need to take that seriously. No man wants to be called we or little, okay? That's just not right. But here's a man that would have been mocked. He would have been seen as an outcast. Look at this, Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho, and he was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Now, what kind of a guy was Zacchaeus? A man of good reputation? well-esteemed man. Well, he was a chief tax collector, strike one, and he was rich, strike two. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. Three strikes, you're a social outcast right here, Zacchaeus. You're a tax collector, so you're taking money from people. And nobody, nobody likes the IRS. Well, that's who you are, and it's even worse because you're taking more money than you should. You're ripping people off, and you're giving it to the Romans who are ruling over us and oppressing us, so you're a traitor. Well, we hate you right now because you're a, a tax collector, and then we, we're jealous and envious of you because you're rich, because you've done it in such a twisted, evil way that you've profited in, in, in an unnatural, in a greedy kind of a way from your business, and then, you know, you're just short too, and so that really makes me mad, right? Now, if you're ever going to make fun of short people, this is a biblical way to do it, small in stature. That's a great way to describe someone 
who uh, might be 4'11 and 80 pounds. We can all relate <laughs> to that, right? We root for that. We like that. Uh, I could relate to that. I was short for most of my life. I was mocked by many people. I was the shortest person on my high school football team, so I can feel the pain of the short people. And what Zacchaeus is, is he's such an example of a guy who clearly fell short of the glory of God. Like no one thought Zacchaeus lived up to the standard. Everyone thought this guy was a sinner, a scumbag. Okay? And there's a plot twist that happens after we get introduced to who he is. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree because he wanted to see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, here's the plot twist, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Like up until then, you think this is a story about Zacchaeus wanting to come and see Jesus and then all of a sudden, plot twist, like the whole reason Jesus is even passing through that area is he is inviting himself over to dinner at Zacchaeus' house. Yes, the whole world needed to be saving, but here's how Jesus did it. One soul at a time, seeking them out. And he seeks out this man, Zacchaeus. See, that might happen to somebody here tonight where you think you're coming to church because you want to learn more about Jesus. You want to come and see who Jesus is. And what you might realize tonight while you're sitting here is that Jesus is actually the one looking for you. See? He's coming after you. And that's what happens with Zacchaeus. Now, of course, there's the judgment from all those church people, from all those righteous hypocrites. And when they saw it, they all grumbled, ah, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus, what are you doing? Saving all those sinners, it's ridiculous. Well, verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord. Now, he goes over to his house. Boom, look at what Zacchaeus says. Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. Rich man giving away 50% right there. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, which he most definitely had, that's not really an if. I restore it fourfold, okay? I ripped you off from your last taxes, $250. I'm now showing up at your house with a $1,000 check. That's what he's saying right there. So I'm just going to give a 50% away off the top, and then I'm going to have to use the other 50% to pay back everybody for what I ripped them off. Okay, here's a rich man selling out. That's what happens here. This is a greedy person repenting and deciding they're going to give it all away because the treasure they have found in Jesus is better than the riches of what they've been living for in this life. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house. He also is a son of Abraham, which was a statement designed to offend the Jews who would have thought that they were better because they were true descendants of Abraham. And he's saying, no, anyone who puts their faith in me and repents is a son of Abraham. And then he gives us the, this key verse that gets us into the mind of why Jesus would seek out Zacchaeus. Why would Jesus seek out a woman of Samaria at a well? For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And everybody here who's ever been sought out by Jesus will testify that you're not saved because you came to him, but we're saved because he came to us. Can I get an amen from anybody on that here tonight? He came to seek and to save lost people like 
us, Jesus is the one seeking for you. And he's seeking after a woman that had been tossed aside by probably her whole town. That's why she's coming out for water in the middle of the day. We're going to find out here in a minute that she has been tossed aside by five men. And now the man she is with will not even be righteous enough to marry her. I mean, this is a woman that has been unloved and left out and is lost in her soul. And Jesus goes right towards her, walking through Samaria, so that he'll get there thirsty right when she's going to be able to give him a drink. And notice, he doesn't come and say, hey, do you want to be saved? He doesn't come and say, when are you going to repent, you miserable sinner? No, he comes and he puts her at ease right away and he says, hey, can you give me a drink? He immediately even gives her the upper hand in the conversation. Go back to John chapter 4 and look at the masterful tact that Jesus has. You've got to see that Jesus loves people. You've got to see the gentleness of Jesus here. You've got to see his patience with this woman. He does not come on strong to this woman. He comes on at first like he needs her help when he asks her for a drink. And she's shocked by his request. That a Jewish man is asking her, a woman from Samaria, for a drink. And Jesus then is going to use even the context, the situation that they're in, and he's going to use water as the analogy for eternal life. Look at how masterfully he does this here in verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, Jesus, referring to himself in the third person here, and he would have given you living water. Ha! How would you like some of that? And the woman said to him, Sir, she's a little confused here, a little head scratcher, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. It's about 100 feet deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You can see this woman, she's a little bit sensitive here. Oh, I know you think you're better than you're a Jew, but we've got Jacob's well here. That's pretty impressive, right? She's kind of starting to feel out Jesus in this conversation. And Jesus said to her, here's some of the great two verses right here from Jesus Christ in all of the scripture. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman gets this. She said to him right away, Sir, give me this water. Now she doesn't fully understand what's going on. Because she says, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She admits that she needs this living water. Still not clear what it is, but she totally buys into the analogy here that, that she needs something beyond what she has. She needs a source of satisfaction. That's what she needs. What an amazing conversation where Jesus can just turn an ordinary situation of asking a woman for a drink at a well and make that rich, meaningful analogy that what you really need is a well inside of you. What you really need is a living water that satisfies your soul's thirst once and for all. Just a powerful A metaphor here that Jesus gives us. And really, he's referring to something that's all through the Scripture. Look at John chapter 7. Turn over to John chapter 7. This idea of living water is going to come up again. 
And we'll dive deeper into the full significance of it here in John 7. We actually did a sermon on Easter. I don't know who was here, but we did a sermon called Free Refills where we got into this idea of water. And look what Jesus is going to say later in Jerusalem, and he's going to masterfully steal the show at the Feast of Tabernacles or booze here. We're going to get to this in a little, little few weeks. John 7, verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, that's how you get saved, that's how you experience salvation flowing from the inside, faith in Jesus, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I want to put a well inside of you. Now this he said, and here what the, the water, the well, is an analogy of, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So this is the definition we're working of uh, with, uh, on salvation here, is that what you need to be saved is you need a new heart. You need the Spirit of God to live inside of you. That's something that only God can do to you. Only God can put living water, a well, a reservoir of life inside of you. And the way he does that is he puts his spirit within you. And our response, very clearly from this passage, our response is we believe in Jesus. We look to Jesus and we live. When we put our trust in Jesus, that's our response, he, God, does a supernatural work to save us. And the metaphor we're going to use tonight is it's like he puts a river of living water flowing inside of us. Now you have a source of life within you. You don't keep needing to look for life from the outside because life is now coming up from within, see? A new heart, the Holy Spirit of the living God working in you, causing you to go in a completely new direction than you've ever gone before. Now this isn't just an analogy that Jesus made up. Go to Isaiah 55. Everybody turn with me back to the Old Testament. Come on, grab your Bible. Let's, let's hear the pages turning. Page 615, if you got one of our Bibles. And clearly, there's so many passages I could take you to about this idea of living water. But here it is prophesied and explained in Isaiah 55, an invitation for anyone who wants to admit, like this woman does, that she needs living water. Like she, her life is not good enough. She's not satisfied. She's still seeking some kind of salvation. Even at this point, she's confused as to what it is. She couldn't maybe define it yet, but she knows she needs something. She's thirsty in her soul. She's hungry, if you will. Well, here's the invitation. Extend it out. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, you can't, can't afford it? Well, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. We're giving away life for free. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Why are you working so hard to go after your sins, to go after the things of this world that never fill your heart up? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. There's an invitation that's on the table here tonight that if you will acknowledge here tonight that you are a sinner and your soul is needy, that you're thirsty, that you're hungry, you don't have to pay anything. You just come to Jesus here tonight and He will put a living water well inside of you. That's what He said. You don't have money? Perfect. 
come on in. That's the kind of people I'm looking for. People who are spiritually bankrupt. People who are broke enough to admit that they're not good. Well, come on in and eat. Come in and for the first time in your life, be satisfied tonight, Jesus is saying. You're working so hard to satisfy yourself in your sin. You're trying so hard to fill that empty heart of yours, to fill that God-shaped hole in your soul. And he says, how are you doing with that? You're laboring for the things that do not satisfy. So come and hear and see and live. This is the invitation of salvation. This is what Jesus, though this woman isn't maybe fully aware of what's happening yet, this is what he offers to her, and she is aware that she needs it. And she says, give it to me. I want it. And he gives her this rich picture of a fountain. I don't know what you guys think about fountains or, or babbling brooks or little rivers in the backyards of life, but I love fountains. Does anybody else here love fountains? There's a place over at Bellaterra. I don't know what they were doing, but there's this beautiful circle fountain right across from Old Navy there in the parking lot. And there's nobody ever there. Have you ever been there before? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? There's like three fountains. We call them the Trinitarian fountains of life. And, and no one, it's like ghost town and the most beautiful fountains that you've ever seen in, in the world right here in Huntington Beach, Bellaterra. Maybe they're not the most beautiful in the world, but they're the nicest ones around here. And so sometimes even our staff here at the church, when we're having a lunch, we'll go sit by the fountains of life. And as we hear, this, I know it's a little cheesy, but this is me. When we, as we hear the rushing water, right? It gives like this background for this conversation. The only person I've ever really envied their condition in life before was a homeless man I met once. And then I said to him, what do you do with your free time? And he says, I go swimming. And I said, well, where do you go swimming? The ocean, the pool? He says, fountains. I go swimming in fountains. And that was, I, I stumbled when he said that. I envied his lifestyle. I was like, I, was like, I want to go swimming in fountains. They're just a picture. Flowing water is this picture of life. See? And Jesus is using this analogy that we can kind of just relate to naturally. And he's saying, woman, we're here. I'm asking you for a drink. You're going to put your, your water jar down there. We're going to pull it up. We're going to get something to drink. No, you need what's down there inside of you. You need a fountain of living water flowing inside of you and nothing you ever do will fill that unless I give it to you. That's what Jesus is saying. And do you admit your need? Or do you, do you know that that's what Jesus gave you? Like, this has to happen to every one of us where we go from dead and dry on the inside to alive and satisfied, never thirsting, never hungry. That's what it is. Now go back to John chapter 4, and you'll see here that the woman, she, she wants it. She's immediately intrigued by the analogy. She says, give it to me. I need it. I, my life is, I, I'm tired of coming here, especially probably in the middle of the day when it's hot by myself. But she's not quite understanding what you really have to do, what it, what it really looks like to come to Jesus. And so he makes it very clear in verse 16 when he now directs the conversation where he wants it to go. And Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Getting right to the heart of the issue with this particular woman. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
Can you feel the silence that must have hung there in the air between Jesus and this woman at the well? There's nobody else around. And all of a sudden, this interesting man, a Jewish man who's talking to you and claiming he has living water is now exposing the sins of your heart. Like he knows who you are. What a moment that must have been for that woman. It must have felt like she was exposed. It must have felt like her heart had just been cut open. And what was on the inside was now clearly seen on the outside. See, there's an offer of living water for everybody here, but here's what you have to do. You have to leave your sin behind. See, It's free, and it's on the table, but it is going to cost you your sin. In fact, if you want to write down Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7, it says you've got to seek the Lord. You've got to come to the Lord, and here's what that looks like. It looks like turning from your sins. We call that repentance around here at Compass Bible Church, and it's not a word we came up with. No, it's a word that Jesus said and John the Baptist said and the apostles said. It's all over the New Testament. Here's what it looks like to come and to get the living water of Jesus Christ. You stop going for the water that never satisfies and you turn and you follow him. You have to make a trade. You have to stop trying to satisfy your sinful heart with sin, and you have to turn from that. You have to leave it behind here tonight, and you have to come to him for the living water. He'll give it to you freely, without price. But what it is going to cost you, see, is it's going to cost you a turn from your sin to follow Jesus Christ. And he goes after it with this woman. In a, in a gentle but straightforward way, he says to her, hey, why don't you get your husband? Let's start talking about what's really going on. You want the living water? Well, here's what you got to deal with, woman. You got to deal with your sin. We've got too many people who are trying to have the living water of Jesus Christ and the water of this world. See? They're trying to get away with the best of both worlds, and it's not going to work like that. If you want a living water inside of you. You're going to have to turn from your sins. In fact, this was another part of the water analogy. Go back to the Old Testament with me, this time to Jeremiah. We've got to see these great verses that Jesus is referring to to get the full depth of the richness of meaning. A lot of this would have gone over the head of the Samaritan woman, but that was kind of the point for all of the church people to realize how masterful Jesus was in the conversation, even if maybe the woman wasn't fully tracking with everything he was saying. And see, the Jews, they would have known a rebuke from God to them in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, page 628, if you got one of our Bibles. One of the strongest indictments, perhaps, of the Jewish people. Jeremiah was a prophet warning the Jews over and over to turn from their sins before Jerusalem was invaded by King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. And look what it says here in Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13. These are great verses. Everybody needs to know. It says, Be appalled, O heavens. Often God would call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against His own people. And He says here, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Like, can you guys, the heavens will not even... Believe what is happening. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people, he's talking about his own people, the nation of Israel, have committed two evils. One, 
They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Okay? So the one evil is I'm over here offering, offering them eternal life, offering them soul satisfaction from the inside out, and they have looked at the living water, and they have said, yeah, we're not interested in that. We're not going to seek you out, God. We know that you're seeking out us, but we're not going to seek after you. No, we're not going to look to the living waters, and then we're going to do the second evil here. They've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So here's God over here. Here's Jesus Christ tonight saying that he will be the source of life in my soul. That he will put a living water that will flow life from the inside out of me and I'm going to reject that offer of living water. And then I'm going to go over here and I'm going to start digging my own well. And then I'm going to start dumping water into my own well. And the well that I dig isn't a very good one. It's broken because the water actually seeps out the bottom. So here's a fountain over here I could be swimming in. But no, I don't want to do that. I want to go do the hard work of digging my own well, trying to satisfy my own soul with my sin. And then I'm going to dump my life, my water, into that well. And it's going to seep out into the ground at the bottom. And it's not going to satisfy me one bit in the end. And God says, this is shocking that people would do this. Like, can you believe that people would not only reject the living water that I'm trying to give them, but they would go out and they would commit themselves to things that will never fill them up on the inside. How stupid is this? What foolishness. How many people are just digging their own well and dumping water into it and it's just going down. I mean, this woman went from relationship to relationship to relationship. That's what she went to. She was searching for love in all the wrong places. That's the kind of woman this was, see? She thought that a man was somehow going to fill up her life on the inside. She has made the mistake that many women have made throughout history. I'm sure many women have made here in this room tonight thinking that some man and some relationship is going to somehow give your life meaning and it never will. And how hard did she work in those relationships? How deep did she dig in those relationships and five times it blew up in her face and now here she is on the on the road to her next disaster with mr number six here who won't even marry her this sound like some people you know this sound maybe dangerously close to you we got some big problems here in the church we got people in this room here tonight that are trying to satisfy themselves with sexual immorality or other sins that the world promises that maybe you even think give you some kind of temporary fix or satisfaction, but in the end they leave you empty, your life poured out. And God is over here tonight through Christ saying, I want to give you living water. I want you swimming in a fountain and you're taking what little water you have and you're done dumping it down in a well of your own making that's never going to fill you up. When is it going to stop? See? When are we going to realize that will never work? Not today or any other day. Is that going to satisfy me? Now go to Galatians chapter 5 and look at this with me. Let's just put it very straightforward terms here in New Testament language. What we're talking about here is the contrast between the life that we're born into, the life of the flesh, 
and then the life that God is offering us, the, the life of the Spirit. So here's the broken wells, cisterns that can't even hold water. That's the life of the flesh, where I'm just doing what feels good, what looks good, what makes me feel like I'm alive in my own pride. See? The life of sin. And then over here, here's a life where God says He'll give you a new heart, He'll put His Spirit within you, and life will now come from the inside out of you. And here in Galatians 5, Paul summarizes what these two different lives that we're talking about here tonight might look like. Look at this with me. Galatians chapter 5. Let's just jump in at verse 19. Two pictures we're going to paint. And you're only one of these two people. Okay? You're either pouring your water into a broken well or you've got a well of living water inside of you. Those are the two options. You're one or the other. Now the works of the flesh are evident. This is the life of sin. Here's what it looks like. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, and he kept warning people about this, even though I'm sure they didn't always want to hear it. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's your lifestyle, if that's who you are, if that's what you're pouring your water into thinking it's going to satisfy you. Well, let me just tell you right now, you're not on the path to heaven. You don't have a fountain of living water flowing inside of you representing the spirit of the living God. No, let me show you what that looks like. Verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit, it's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the ability to tell yourself no. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, man, that's who they are. They've crucified the flesh. They've died to that old life with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, if we're saved in the Spirit, well, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Man, why would we do this? Why would we say no to a fountain of living waters and pour out what little water we have into a well that's broken? We need to turn from broken things to flowing springs. Let's get that down. Now, I just skipped point number two. Okay, let's put point number two down. Seek Jesus as your source of life. Jesus is the living water. We, by faith in him, we get the spirit of the living God. So you got to come to Jesus as your source of life. And to do that, to come to Christ, you can't just say, well, I want Jesus. No, he, he's going after the lady's sin. He's bringing up what she's going to have to leave behind. So point number three, put this down uh, like this, that you've got to turn from broken things, that's whatever you're trying to stuff into this well, to flowing springs. That's the life that's now coming from inside of you. And that needs to happen tonight for some of you right here. If we're telling you about fountains of living water and you walk out of these doors and you want to keep on working hard to dig a well that's never going to satisfy you, that makes zero sense here tonight. Okay? Let's just talk about sins that people are, are just wasting their life on, pouring themselves out for. Let's just talk for a minute here about sexual immorality and how that is destroying the lives of many people. Okay? I mean, I, I get to experience this a lot as people turn to God for salvation or as people try to deal with their marriage issues or their personal sin issues. Uh, I'm here as a pastor. I'm here to help people to invest in the souls that Jesus is saving. 
And man, the problems with sexual immorality are rampant and out of control right here in Huntington Beach, as if you needed me to tell you that. But let me just tell you, after living here for one year, it's out of control. And it's happening right here among people in the church. I'm not talking about the world out there. I'm talking about people who claim the name of Christ. We got so many people right around this area who are living together who are not married. There are Samaritan women all around here. And people come to church like that. They're living with someone and they're not married. And maybe they've been in many relationships like that. Maybe they've been in that relationship for a long time. And Jesus goes out of his way to bring that to the woman's attention. And she knows that it's wrong right when he says it. She knew it was wrong before she even got into it. But the way our culture is moving with technology these days, you don't even really need another person to be committing sexual immorality. This could be a private struggle for many people here in this room even, and you don't even talk to anybody about it. There's nobody else who knows what you're looking at, what you're thinking about. You're keeping that to yourself. It's this little well that you keep hidden that nobody knows about, and every once in a while you open it up and you pour more of your water in there, and then you hate yourself afterwards. And you lie to people around you because you don't want to tell them the truth about what you're doing because you're ashamed of yourself, see? And you feel guilty about what you're doing. And you're afraid to even come to places like this. And we we scare people off from coming to places like this because they think if they admit that they have a problem with sexual morality that they'll be run out of the church because they'll be looked down on. And Jesus, he finds a woman who this clearly defines her lifestyle. Like this is something she's been trapped in. And maybe after the first time she tried to get out of it. Maybe after the second time she tried to get out of it. Maybe after the third time. Maybe even it was the fifth relationship that she told herself, finally, enough is enough. If I get in another relationship, I'm going to do it right. And here she is with a man she's not even married to. And Jesus says, even you, woman, can have living water if you want it. I don't care how ashamed you feel or how guilty you think that you are. Jesus Christ will forgive you here tonight for your sin. He will forgive you completely for your sexual immorality. And he will give you a source of satisfaction flowing from inside of you so that you will not want to live that way anymore. He will change you from the inside out. Any former sexually immoral people want to shout amen right now here tonight? You want to testify that there is a living water that's a lot better than that stupid broken well I thought was going to fill me up, man. And all it did was just break me. That's what that broken well did. And what I need is I need a new source of satisfaction. See, a lot of times when you're working with people, they think, well, if I was just married, then all of a sudden sexual immorality wouldn't be a problem. No, the opposite of sexual immorality is not marriage. The opposite of sexual immorality is finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ. That's the opposite. When you're telling lust no, what you have to put on instead is living water flowing from the inside out a real relationship with God through Jesus Christ and you will be able to not only just tell yourself no when you're tempted, you will eventually, as you grow in Christ, not even want to go back there because you will be satisfied with your love for him. That's what he offers this woman. 
And the woman, she does kind of a classic technique. Go to John chapter 4 and look at this with me. John chapter 4. Man, I don't know if you've ever had somebody do this to you when you're evangelizing, and all of a sudden it gets a little personal. Uh, We start talking. That person realizes we're not just having a religious debate. We're actually talking about them. You ever had that moment of uh, realization? Whoa, you know? And then they want to bring up, well, what about the man in Africa who's never heard? What about the baby who wasn't even born, right? And I'm, my answer to that is always, that's not you, is it? Let's talk about you. See? Well, the woman, she, she classic evasive technique of all time here. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, I got a question for you. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, I don't know what this woman's motives were. If she was purposely trying to, eh, let's steer that conversation somewhere else. Or if she was just legitimately confused. And as soon as she realized that Jesus was a prophet, or it could even read the prophet. As soon as she realized who she's talking to, she asked him this question. But it's a question about a form of worship. Okay? The Samaritans had come up with their place to worship because they didn't want to associate with the Jews who worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews who worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem didn't want the Samaritans coming there. And so they had developed over time a place where they worshipped and it made sense to them scripturally a mountain where they worshipped. And so she brings up this religious issue. This would have been a debate between typical of Jews and Samaritans. In verse 21, Jesus now answers her. What an amazing answer. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. First of all, that question isn't really the issue we're here to talk about. Second, verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. If you want me to answer your question, the Jews have it right, you have it wrong. But let's get back to the heart of the issue, verse 23. But the hour is coming, and it's now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Because really it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Samaritan. No, we're looking for true worshipers who will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And here's the truth, woman. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. That's what I'm doing with you right now. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So the question kind of takes them on a detour, on a, on a rabbit trail. But Jesus, while bringing it back to the woman, to the fact that she needs in her spirit to have living water to even worship God, like why is she asking this theoretical question about the form of worship when she doesn't even have a spirit inside of her to worship God right now? And so he does answer her question, but then he turns it back to how the Father is seeking out her soul so that she will become a worshiper who has, by the power of the Spirit, a new life inside of her to respond to God in both a real, meaningful, inside way, and that's true. And so he takes it back to her while answering her question. And man, isn't this a big problem in the church? Isn't the form of worship distracting so many people from the real thing? Isn't even the way that people talk about churches today is what's their style of worship? What are their services like? And when we say that, what do we mean? We're talking about music is what we're talking about. And people go to churches based on the style of the music 
at the church. And that's like a form of worship. See, it's so easy to turn conversations when we're trying to get to the real things of the soul, to turn them to external forms and ceremonies. See, that's what naturally we all try to do that. And how many people aren't even going to church because they're so tired of so many different denominations and so many different practices and they can't all agree. And so let's just write the whole church off anyways. Great strategy that Satan has been employing that's working on a massive level. Let's just get people to focus on the external things and completely miss the heart of the whole experience. Which is it doesn't matter what style of music or what cultural people or what that church is like. Man, if they're preaching the real gospel of Jesus Christ and they're exalting God, you can worship at that place. I mean, even here at this church, there's probably people who rate the church based on external things. I know a lot of people don't like how long the preaching is here at this church. I've heard this comment many times. A lot of new people. They're not really used to going to church maybe or they haven't been to a church where the guy's up there talking for 50 minutes. Yeah, I'm not going to go back to that church. I don't like that form of worship. I guess that's my bad. I got to own that one right there. And they're done with it. And it's not even based on what was the guy saying. Did you think anything he was saying was from the Bible or real or true or applied to you? No, I just didn't like that he talked for 50 minutes. That was a little too long for me. There were no commercial breaks. See, you might be guilty of this same thing that this woman does here. That I'm trying to go after your soul right now as Jesus went after this woman's soul and I'm trying to preach the word and you're going to go away and you're going to say, well, so-and-so didn't talk to me the way that I wanted to at that church or I had a hard time parking or we're just going to focus on things that don't even matter. Worship is a response to God. Let's get this down for point number four. Here's what you need to do. You need to respond to God from the inside. And this response to God, it can happen anywhere. You don't need to go to a worship service to worship God. In fact, a lot of times, probably when people are at a worship service, they're not even worshiping God. Okay? Worship is when you respond to God. Mostly, when we see worship in the Bible, what it looks like is someone falling on their face in awe of who God is. It's the primary uh, way that we see worship happening in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the word for worship has the idea of bowing down. Okay, It's an awe, it's a reverence, it's a, just a wonder at who God is. You get a high view of God in heaven, you see yourself for who you are in sin, you're overwhelmed with Him, you begin to worship. You see Jesus Christ there dying on your cross, you feel the, the guilt and the shame of your sin, you see how He paid for it, how He forgave you, how He has washed your sin away, you experience your, that remembrance of your forgiveness and you worship Him can happen during a song, it can happen during a sermon, it can happen while you're driving in your car, it can happen when you're reading your Bible on your own. Worship can happen anywhere. It's when you respond to God. Sometimes maybe you're, you're clapping and you're cheering and you're just full of rejoicing. Other times maybe you're weeping and you're mourning and you're just broken. But it's you having a real encounter with God and your heart, this living water inside of you, starts overflowing and you worship God. That's what it is. It might not even happen during music. It might happen more in the sermon. It might happen when you're going home and you're thinking about it hours later and you start crying and you don't even know why because you're worshiping God because you realize what He did for you, see? That's what it is. 
And Jesus is saying, hey, the Father is seeking people. This is what God wants. This is the whole point of everything, is God wants to save you so you will worship Him forever. And you and Him will have this beautiful relationship where He's your Savior and you are His worshiper. And the Father is seeking this. This is why the Father sent His only Son. This is why Jesus is seeking out this woman. Because He wants to turn a sexually immoral woman into a worshiper of the Holy God. Hey, I'm not here to talk about mountains in Samaria and temples in Jerusalem. I'm here to talk about your spirit because you have to have a spiritual relationship with God. God is spirit. You've got to worship him in spirit from your soul, from the inside of you. And when you worship him, it has to come from the inside of you and it has to be true. You can't fake it. can't just be emotions. That's what we think worship is today. Let me just ramp up everybody's emotions and then we'll call it worship. That's not what worship is. Yeah, it has an emotional component. It comes from the deepest part of us. It comes from our spirit. But it also consists of truth. See? It has to be meaningful. It has to be real. It has to be what the Bible describes. You have to have the right God in your mind. And you have to be having a right response to Him to really worship. Go to Matthew 15. And you'll see here where Jesus is going to uh, uh, rebuke the, the Pharisees were focusing on, the, focusing on the outside and not on the inside. Matthew 15, just start with me in verse 1, page 820 if you got one of our Bibles. And look at how they, the, they miss the point. Look at how we miss the point. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Can you imagine that? You have the God-man. The word become flesh dwelling among you. And your question for Jesus is, hey, why aren't you guys washing their hands? Yeah, we laugh. Because it sounds ridiculous to us. I wonder how many ridiculous things we talk about around here. How many ridiculous things? Where everybody's trying to convince everybody else here to go on the same diet that they're going on. Right? Or to get, educate their kids the same way that they're educating their kids. Or let's start debating politics. Let's start arguing about vaccines. I mean, there's so many things that we can start getting into. Let's talk about, yeah, how long should our service be? And what kind of worship music should we do here at the church? And we can just get off on so many things. And Jesus, he just won't handle it. Verse 3, he answered them. Okay, let me ask you a question. Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Why are you focusing more on the form than on the substance? Let me tell you, for God commanded, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and, or mother must surely die. But you say, well, you should take care of your father and mother, but if you tell your father and mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, well, then you don't need to honor your father. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the words of God. Here's what they were doing. They're supposed to support their parents when they are old and honor them and love them and financially support them and take care of them, but they're saying, instead of supporting their parents, oh, I'm going to give that money to God. And they're justifying their disobedience with supposedly an act of worship. See? And Jesus is just calling out their hypocrisy right there. You hypocrites, verse 7, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines, the commandments of men. If there's one thing that Jesus hates and that God the Father hates, it's the hypocrisy of fake worship that happens at churches like this one when people sing the songs that they like, but there's no spirit and there's no truth and they go home and keep on sinning and dumping their water into their broken well. And that's what Jesus hates. I once got to go to this youth camp, and I remember they played this song, and clearly when they played this song at this camp, the point was for everybody to jump up and down. It had a certain rhythm to the music, certain words, and so they played the song, and man, the whole place, every single young person in the place, these high school students, they were jumping up and down, shouting at the right time, singing about Jesus, and then we walked out of that auditorium, and we went to have snack time or whatever, and I just listened to the conversations that were happening all around right after this time of worship and the foul language and the inappropriate jokes and the disrespect just everywhere you could hear it right away at a church camp. And I was like, God would want to vomit this out of his mouth. One of the things that breaks my heart about singing songs at church is wondering how many fake people we have singing those songs. People putting their hands up, shouting out the lyrics, going home, dumping out their life into more sin. And Jesus says, in vain do you worship me. No, we're not talking about religion. We're not talking about external forms. I'm talking about do you in your soul worship the God who made you and the God who saved you? That's what we're talking about. Do you have a response from your spirit that is true to the living God? Do you worship him? You might do it here with us at church. You might do it on your own, but if you have been saved, if you've got the fountain of living water flowing inside of you, man, you will worship the name of Jesus. Can I get an amen from anybody on this? Are you a worshiper? No, 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 lady. It's not about a mountain, and it's not about a temple, and it's not about church, and it's not about music. No, I'm asking, do you worship the Father? That's what he's looking for. He's looking for those little quiet moments of the day when it's just you and him, and you worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman now, she go back to John 4, she says something that shows uh, that she does know something from the scriptures. Clearly she has grown up and heard some truth. And the woman said to him, well, I know something about worshiping God. I know that the Messiah is coming. And then it puts in parentheses here in verse 25, he who is called Christ, so I know the anointed one from God is coming, and when he comes, he's going to tell us all things. He's the one who's going to show us the way. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I mean, this is really the clearest declaration we've had from Jesus yet in this gospel, that he is the Messiah and the Christ. He's going to declare it many times by the end of the gospel, but this is really the clearest one we've had so far. And he makes it to a sexually immoral woman, a Samaritan, a social outcast. And he says, hey, I came all this way to tell you I'm right here. What are you waiting for? Here I am. Now is the hour that the Father is seeking you to worship him, Jesus says. And the instantaneous response of this woman is, is amazing. 
Verse 27, just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. They're shocked that this conversation is even taking place. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman, check this out, she left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I mean, when the woman gets it, when he fully discloses who he is, that it's me, I'm the one you're supposed to believe in, I'm the Christ, the Messiah. It's like she drops what she's doing. She, leaves the, she completely forgets the purpose that she walked all the way out to that well. And you can just picture her, and she takes off running in the opposite direction. And she runs into town, where the town of people that she was avoiding. And she says to them, Come see a man who told me everything I know about myself. A man who just took my heart and exposed it completely. A man who with his words revealed to me the sin that I was in on the inside. And he showed me who I am. And the town probably thought, yeah, well, there's a lot that he could say about you, lady. Right? And she says, could it be the Messiah? Could it be the Christ? And her, her testimony is so compelling. There's so much excitement to this woman that she literally inspires a town full of people who probably looked down on her to follow her and now they're all walking out to the well because she gets it. She sees Jesus and it's like she forgets the water jar because she's got the well inside of her now and she's running to tell everybody else about it. Instantaneous response is I want to tell the whole town of Sychar that I just met the Messiah. And the disciples, they don't understand what, what's going on. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him. Remember, they went to get food, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? What's this mystery food? I mean, there wasn't just Taco Bell on every corner. How did he do this? Jesus said to them, here's, here's a key into the heart of Jesus the evangelist. My food. What really satisfies me, what I live for, is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. See, when Jesus showed up, he was weary from his traveling and he said that he was thirsty to the woman. Please give me a drink. But after he has a salvation conversation with the woman, he's telling his disciples, I don't even need food because he's feeling recharged himself is the idea here. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Verse 35, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. And see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. So that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows, somebody told her, this woman about the Messiah a long time ago. And another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Here's Jesus referring to the whole foundation of the law and the prophets that now the gospel is preached on, that this message of the Messiah has been sown for thousands of years and now is the time, he says, to reap. And he says, look out into the harvest. And you can imagine this, this well was a good distance away from the town. And there goes the woman running. And now she's getting all these people and they're starting to walk back. And you can imagine as Jesus is saying this, look at the harvest field. You think it's coming up in four months? Check it out right now. And the disciples turn and look. And here comes the town of Sychar out to come and see the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, hey, here's my food. 
Here's what I thrive on. Here's what I find life. Talking to people like this woman at the well and leading her to eternal life, seeing her get saved, that's my food, Jesus says, to do the will of the Father who sent me on a seek and save mission for lost souls like this woman, for this whole town of people. This is what we're here to do, he says to the disciples. We're here to see a great harvest of souls saved. This is what we're here to do. Verse 39 summarizes the the story. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Revival broke out in Sychar because of the sexually immoral woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. He exposed my sin. And now she loves it. Now she's telling everybody about it. Traded that broken well for a fountain of living water. And the Samaritans came to him. They asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days days ministering to these people and many more believed because of his word and they said to the woman it's no longer because of what you said that we believe no we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world and after two days he departed for galilee For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, then the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen what he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he stays there two days and then he moves on. But what's the testimony of the whole town at the end of those two days? Is we get it, this man is really the savior of the world. Because one woman got saved and told the entire town. And that's what intrigued them. But eventually they came to see Jesus for themselves. And they believed in him in their own personal way. They got the new spirit. And they started to worship in truth. So we should all see the example of this this woman here. Who immediately from the moment that she sees who Jesus is. She has to tell everybody that she knows. Point number five, did you flip your page over and realize we had five points here? Did everybody, whoa, what is going on here tonight? Point number five, testify to Jesus on the outside. If you've got this response to God on the inside, this living water that's starting to flow out of you, which is the Holy Spirit working in you, which is your faith in Jesus, man, you need to let the world know. Why is it that the new Christians are always the ones out spreading the word? We got to tell everybody we can. The whole town. Come, see a man who exposed me all of the things that I was pouring in to my broken life that were never going to satisfy, and he put a well of living water. I met a man at the well, and he put a well inside of me. What a great testimony this woman had to share. And the town responded. They were intrigued. They saw this sense of life flowing out of this woman, this overflow of the Holy Spirit coming out of her. And they had to come and see, and as they did, many of them saw that Jesus... He was the Savior of the world. And here's the good news tonight is that the Savior of the entire world wants to come to your town and He wants to find you when you're alone and He wants to save you, see. He's the Savior of the whole world, yeah, and He came to save you. I mean, what a great way to show us that He could save anyone, anywhere, any place, any time by going after this woman that everybody would have written off. Even His own disciples are like, why are you talking to her? And she becomes the messenger that spreads the good news to the entire town where revival breaks out. Because the Savior of the world wants to save you. Do you have a fountain of living water flowing from inside of you tonight? 
You have the new life of the Spirit. You got it by faith in Jesus. And now you do have moments of worship of God in your life. You do respond to Him from the inside out. You connect with God who is Spirit because you have a new Spirit now within you, His Holy Spirit, and you worship Him. And it's true when you worship Him. It's an accurate reflection of your life. It's not hypocritical. It's not fake. It's real. So much that it overflows and it affects the people around you and you're dragging your family and friends and those poor people that have to live on your street or work next to you at the office because you just want to tell them about Jesus all the time. Because you got a fountain of living water. You don't care who knows it, right? Is that you? And I pray that Jesus has saved you here. And if you haven't been saved, wouldn't tonight be a great night? Wouldn't it just seem like such a mistake? to leave here tonight and to go back to that broken cistern that you poured so much of your life into and to keep pouring more in there knowing you will never get a return. When right now I'm offering to you through the words of Jesus Christ as he offered it to this Samaritan woman, a fountain of living waters, a well of satisfaction flowing from the inside out. Which one will you choose here tonight? So maybe there's some salvation conversations that need to happen here tonight. Maybe we've got some people who need to confess their sin, who need to own up to all that they have done and to turn from that and to trust in Christ. I'm going to pray for you, and then what we're going to do is we're going to spread out in all over this room. We've got donuts and coffee room over here. We've got the lobby. Find three, four, five people, maybe people from your home fellowship group, and let's spend some time praying. And if you have that living water, let's spend some time praising the Lord. And if you don't have it, there are people in this room right now. They'll talk to you one-on-one. There won't be any judgment. There won't be any looking down on you because you had a broken well. We all had the broken well. We get it. But now what we can have is the living water of Jesus Christ. Let me pray. God, we thank you so much. God, it's, it's so awesome to see the love that you show through your son, Jesus Christ, that he came to die for the sins of the world, but also, what a beautiful picture to see tonight that he goes out of his way to meet a woman at a well. And he tells her how she can have a well of life inside of her. A woman that had been given up on by at least five men and probably the entire town. And Jesus offered her eternal life. And he said she could go right into the presence of God and worship you. And he made her a great missionary who reached her entire town. God, we just worship Jesus Christ for his love for us. We praise you that you sent your son to seek and save lost sinners like us. And God, we do want to see more people get saved here tonight. God, I pray that if anyone in their empty soul right now is thirsty and they want the living water, there's anybody here who knows tonight that that broken well they've been pouring their life out into, they realize, yeah, that's never going to fill me up. God, I pray that you will draw them to yourself now and you will give them this spring of living water flowing inside of them, that you'll give them a new heart and the power of your spirit and they'll tonight declare their faith in Jesus Christ and their willingness to turn from that old broken life and to start living a new life. God, if there's anyone here and you're working on their heart, please don't let them leave here and go back to that life of brokenness. God, give them a new life. Have them talk to someone. 
Let a salvation conversation happen, at least one here tonight, Lord, just like Jesus talked to this woman. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Hey, thanks.